Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 27, Letters from a Small Isle, part 1. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to support it, then why not consider giving it a review on iTunes? It's free, easy, and only takes about 30 seconds of your time. It's a great way to help get the word out about the show. I want to begin this week with a listener question. It comes to us from Twitter, from at NOCblog, who asks, Why couldn't the Pilgrims get food from Jamestown, which is a much closer and coastal boat trip? This is a great question. I haven't really explored the relationship between Jamestown and Plymouth, and this is a great way to deal with it. When we think of colonisation efforts, it's standard practice to think of it as countries acting, and to a certain extent it is, we have England, Spain, France, and the other European heavyweights staking claims to the New World, but this strand of imperialism is very different from the version of it which existed during, say, the Victorian era, the height of the Second British Empire. The First British Empire is the one we're currently witnessing the construction of, centred on the United States. The Second British Empire is the one which would be centred on India. But, as I say, that empire will not exist for some time. What we have at the moment is not the English state colonising North America, but rather the English state giving out licences to companies which would colonise North America on the state's behalf. At this point in history, both Jamestown and Plymouth are controlled by two different companies, each with a different set of investors back in London. They operated the colonies, they sent officials over, and they funded the operations. If a colony needed supplies, it would be the merchants doing it, not the state. So, while there are two English colonies on the North American continent, they have very little to do with each other legally. They might share some abstract patriotism since they had both travelled there from the same country, but they would have very little reason for helping each other out. Both enterprises were being operated out of London, so it made more sense for the goods to just go across the Atlantic, rather than having the extra step of going through Virginia to Plymouth. That's the legal side of the answer. Then there is also a practical element. Virginia had been in existence for about 15 years or so, and it hadn't yet reached a point of maturity where it was self-sufficient. Most of its crop wasn't food, but tobacco, which was sent straight back to London to secure supplies. Part of the reason that Virginia did not break free of British control in Bacon's Rebellion was that it still hadn't reached maturity to the point where it didn't need British supplies, and it couldn't yet fend for itself. Plus, there's the whole 1622 Powhatan uprising thing. It only had around a thousand or so inhabitants at this point in history, so it couldn't support the establishment of another colony, even if it wanted to. And, as I said earlier, Plymouth and Jamestown didn't have a legal connection, and it's not unreasonable to think that the early Virginians would have resented Plymouth as a distraction in England from their own colonisation efforts. That's exactly how they felt about Maryland. Thanks for the question, I hope that answers it. 
The summer of 1623 was quite busy at Plymouth, not least of which was the arrival of a hundred more pilgrims as we discussed previously. It takes us to September, and another arrival into New England. Sir Ferdinando Gorges, the founder of the Council for New England himself. He was going to re-found the colony of Wessagusset, but he gave it a new name, Weymouth. He was to be the Governor-General of the region, and formed an executive council made up of Admiral West, Christopher Levitt, a key figure in the New England colonisation effort, and the Governor of Plymouth. Gorges would spend a couple of months in Weymouth, but he did not enjoy the experience of living in the rough world of a new colony. He would be he would be embroiled in a legal battle with that Grinch Western that ultimately came to nothing. He decided to return to England, leaving behind to represent him Mr. William Morell, an educated clergyman. Morell spent a year at Plymouth observing the region. It was only when he eventually left that he revealed he had the authority to force the pilgrims to conform to the Church of England, but he hadn't which greatly earned him the respect of the pilgrims. Meanwhile, at Plymouth, attention was primarily on absorbing the new settlers. There was an issue over food at first, but it was decided that the older settlers would keep the grain they'd grown, while the new settlers would use the food they'd brought with them on the Anne, which would be enough to see them through. The Anne was filled with furs, and on September 10th, it set sail back to England, along with Winslow, who was to communicate with the London merchants, in order that the colony could have what it needed. This was shortly followed by the harvest, which was bountiful. The food supply was finally secure, and we'll no longer be talking about the famine when dealing with Plymouth. On November 5th, there was a small fire when a bonfire got out of hand. The sailors had set up a bonfire while celebrating Guy Fawkes Night, the important piece of information here is that a few houses burnt down, but I'm personally more amused at the description of those celebrating. It tickles the American football fan in me to read about patriots in Massachusetts when the source is describing English patriots rather than, you know, Tom Brady and Gronk. One final point of interest for 1623. We have in December a note in Bradford's notebook about a law which was enacted that, quote, all criminal facts and also all matters of trespasses and debts between man and man should be tried by the verdict of 12 honest men to be impaneled by authority in former jury upon their oath. End quote. Plymouth Colony is really beginning to take shape. In March 1624, it was time for the annual elections. Bradford decided to step down, not wanting one person to monopolise the governorship. He had held the office for the past three years. The pilgrims wouldn't allow it, though he was forced to stay in command. It was at this point that the colony's administration changed, as we mentioned a few episodes ago. The council was introduced, giving Bradford more help in governance than just Allerton, there would be five of them, Bradford with his double vote, Allison and Winslow, and it is likely that the other two were Standish and Fuller. 
This would be the state of affairs until 1633, when the council was increased to seven. A fishing vessel arrived around this time from London, sent by the merchants, known as the Charity. It brought with it a series of letters from Europe. One of these was from James Shirley, who had replaced Weston as the head of the adventurers, the London merchants. Bradford includes a lot of letters in his account, most of which I just summarise, but I think you'll find it interesting for me to quote at least one. Quote, Most worthy and loving friends, your kind and loving letter I have received, and render you many thanks, etc. It hath pleased God to stir up in the hearts of our adventurers to raise a new stock for the setting forth of the ship, called the Charity, with men and necessaries, both for the plantation and the fishing, though accomplished with very great difficulty. In regard, we have some amongst us which undoubtedly aim more at their own private ends, and the thwarting and opposing of some here, and other worthy instruments of God's glory elsewhere, than at the general good and furtherance of this noble and laudable action. Yet again we have many other, and I hope the greatest part, very honest Christian men, which I am persuaded their ends and intents are wholly for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the propagation of his gospel, and hope of gaining those poor savages to the knowledge of God. But, as we have a proverb, one scabbed sheep may mar a whole flock. So these malcontented persons, and turbulent spirits, do what in them laith to withdraw men's hearts from you and your friends, yea, even from the general business, and yet under show and pretense of godliness and furtherance of the plantation, whereas the quite contrary doth plainly appear, as some of the honester-hearted men, though of late of their faction, did make manifest at our late meeting. But what should I trouble you, or myself, with these restless opposers of goodness? And I doubt will be continual disturbers of our friendly meetings and love. On Thursday, the 8th of January, we had a meeting about the articles between you and us, where they would reject that which we, in our late letters, pressed you to grant, an addition to the time of our joint stock. And their reason which they would make known to us was, it troubled their conscience to exact longer time of you than was agreed upon at first. But that night they were so followed and crossed of their perverse causes, as they were even wearied, and offered to sell us their adventures, and some were willing to buy. But I, doubting they would raise more scandal and false reports, and so diverse ways do us more hurt by going off in such a fury, than they could or can by continuing adventurers amongst us, would not suffer them. But on the 12th of January we had another meeting, but in the interim diverse of us had talked with most of them privately, and had great combats and reasoning pro and con, but at night, when we met to read the general letter, we had the loveliest and friendliest meeting that I ever knew, and our greatest enemies offered to lend us fifty pounds. So I sent for a bottle of wine, I would you could do the like, which we drank friendly together. Thus God can turn the hearts of men when it pleaseth him, etc. 
Thus, loving friends, I heartily salute you in all the Lord, hoping ever to rest. Yours to my power, James Shirley. January 25th, 1623. End quote. I think you can see why I normally don't include them, given the language, length, and style. But coming from the world of ancient history, with so little sources, I love having documents written by the people I'm describing, rather than ones written hundreds of years after they've died. It's good to include stuff like this, occasionally. Let's just go over what was included in that in case it wasn't clear. The language really takes some getting used to, and I'm reading this stuff every day. Basically, the London merchants weren't having the best of luck with setting up Plymouth Colony. There had been the whole fiasco with Western, and then the Paragon last week being continually turned back. Some of the London merchants were very unhappy with the whole turn of events, and they wanted out. They wanted to sell their stock. But Shirley would not have this. He realised that this would cause a great scandal. So he basically talked the malcontents into staying put by using a good old technique of getting them drunk. This is his first communication with Plymouth, so he's basically putting them in his debt already from the get-go. Were this a normal episode, I would continue to talk about the letters on the charity, but I'm pretty under the weather at the moment, as you may be able to hear in my voice, and this is about as long as I'm capable of talking for, so we'll call this part one and continue where we left off next time out. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 